0: Well, I'm back to the big Bible. The little one, the words are too small. Just did not take long. <laughs> I found over the last few weeks I've been going, you know, how do you use my finger just to keep my place? But that's cool. That's all right. Um, you know, I just want to say before we get started, I don't often tell you all this, but you just need to know what an honor it is for me to serve with Les, and to have him um, walk beside me and walk with me in ministry, and, and as with all the shepherds, but but Les is, is such such a, a dear friend and um, co-laborer in the gospel, and uh, such a blessing to me. And I know he is to many of you, but I just I needed to say that Les, I just appreciate you so much. <laughs> We talked about saying that ahead of time. <laughs> no, I truly do, and it, and it is amazing to me because uh, what you prayed and where the Lord took your heart is exactly where he has been taking my heart today. And, and even in the things that we're going to talk about tonight, hey, we're in Second Chronicles. We're in biblical history, and yet it is so immediate and so pertinent and so relevant to right now. And I want you to keep that in mind as we study tonight. We're going to cover four chapters, but we're going to cover it in larger chunks. There's larger stories. And so rather than going piece by piece, word by word, there are bigger stories that we're going to be able to look at tonight. And as we do so, I just encourage you to keep in mind, this is more than history. God chose a people to be His own. He led this people in great glory, revealing some of His nature before them. He brought this people safely into the Promised Land. He gave them His Word and tasked them with being keepers of His Word. You can thank this people that you hold the Word of God in your hands this evening. It was through this people Israel that God sent Messiah. Romans chapter 9 verse 5 and, and you all know if you're a Bible student you understand you know this that Romans 9, 10, and 11 are key passages in the New Testament speaking of the place of Israel and our responsibility to them in relationship with the Jewish people. But in Romans 9, 5 we're told that Messiah, the Christ according to the flesh who is overall, God bless forever came through Israel. And You know that of the line of Judah. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lion of the line of Judah. And in the midst of this history of of this people, in our walk through God's Word tonight, as we continue on, I just want you to to think this room. Remember, we are bound to this people Israel in a God-ordained, glorious way. To the point that Romans 11.18, Paul says, do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you're arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. God chose this people, worked through this people, came through this people, and still has a mighty work He is going to do with this people. And we get to be grafted into that. Praise God for that. I invite you to pray with me one more time as we enter into the study tonight. Father, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for Your people Israel, secular though they may be in the big picture today. Even recognizing, Father, I I don't look at Israel and and see them as perfect, and I don't think of the nation of Israel as, as always making all the right choices and doing all the right things just because they're Israel. But they are your people. And you did make a choice. And you made promises, Lord. And we know you stand by those promises. And we praise You for this. If if not for standing by those promises, why, Lord, would any of us think that You would stand by Your promise of our salvation? But You are faithful even when we are faithless. And You have been faithful and will be faithful, Lord, to Israel because You say You will. And we are so amazed at who You are, at the mind that conceived of all of this. Tonight, as we go back yet again to look at Your people Israel, Specifically, the people of Judah and Benjamin in the southern kingdom. We pray, Father, for revelation. We pray, Father, for encouragement, enlightenment, and altered hearts before You. Which is something we know only Your Holy Spirit can do. None of us can do this. We can't come heart ready, and I can't teach heart preparedness in such a way that this happens if not for Your Holy Spirit. And so, Spirit of God, we invite You to be our teacher tonight. And to plant these things deep in our hearts and make them grow, Holy Spirit. Make them grow, Lord Jesus. For it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, we'll be in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. If you'd like to open up there, 2 Chronicles 20. We left off last week with Jehoshaphat, the sixth king of Judah, tracking down from David, who learned an important... And great lesson regarding poor alliances and unequal yoking. I'm going to say something because we've got a few more teens here in the front row. And by the way, I forgot my son was here last week when I said there was only one teenager. There was two. Corey was in the back, so way to go, son. And uh, so you here in the front row, we talked about Jehoshaphat. His son marries the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Bad marriage. Bad idea. Unequal yoking. The Bible talks a lot about that. And I said last week, and I'll say to those of you in the front row this week, I want to clarify and make sure you're here, especially because you're all girls right here, except for Corey in the back. But I will say to you, when you marry, marry up spiritually. Marry someone who lifts you up, who challenges your faith, who leads you closer to Jesus. Don't you go into a marriage looking to be the one who's going to save. Because it's a hard, hard row. Marry up. Okay, you all got that? Okay, so let's move on. So, Yehoshaphat did not have his son marry up, his son marry down and very poorly. And this alliance was a horrible one. Yehoshaphat's association with the house of Ahab, Israel's most wicked king, almost cost him his life. And as we'll see tonight, very nearly lost the kingdom completely. Now, the good news is, Yehoshaphat was teachable. Something I love about this king that is... Not necessarily like a lot of the other kings. As we watch Jehoshaphat begin with faithfulness, we see him falter. We see him learn and return to that faithfulness again and become even more faithful and more discerning. And then we see him falter again. So he's much more like you and me. Hopefully that we're teachable people. We're not always going to get it right, but we continue to move forward in the Lord. And that's what I see in Jehoshaphat. When the Lord sent Yehu the prophet to speak to him after his bad association with Ahab, Jehoshaphat listened and he did two great things. You may recall from last week, he brought the people back to the Lord. And he taught the people how to discern the things of the Lord. He brought the people and he taught the people. He set up judges throughout all of Israel. And the word of the day was discernment. Not only did he set up judges, but he sent teaching priests and teaching Levites to instruct the people to fear the Lord faithfully and wholeheartedly. And that was a great thing. But now, opening up in chapter 20, we find Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah in dire straits. Verse 1, chapter 20. It came about after this that the sons of Moab with the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Mennonites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, that is Syria. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that's in Gedi. Now in is just to the, if I get this right, to the east of Jerusalem, the rocky area. In fact, in is where the caves are that David hid out in. So they're very close at the the base of, of the mountains there of Judea. And they're very close there Getting ready to attack. Jehoshaphat was afraid, verse 3, and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Yes! I love this. Good job, Jehoshaphat. He's thinking spiritually. He's discerning. He's moving wisely. He's not freaking out. Yes, he is afraid. But he's turning his attention to the Lord. And so, verse 4, Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Three times there in verses 3 and 4, we see that phrase. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. This is the right thing to do when you're under attack. When your life is threatened. When you fear an opposing force. This, by the way, is the mark of a discerning leader. A truly discerning leader will seek the Lord. It says they came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Why? Because their king, Jehoshaphat, didn't pretend like he had it all together. Didn't act like, oh, he was the man of the hour. He was going to save Judah. He didn't know what to do. He was afraid. He sought the Lord, and the people followed him. And they all sought the Lord together. Psalm 121 reads, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now that may be a familiar psalm to some of you. Maybe you've read it or prayed it before. Maybe you've sung the song that's written from it. I realized something this week. Psalm 121, it's the second in the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. These are the Psalms of Ascent or songs of Ascent that the people would sing as they went up to Jerusalem for the major feasts. And they always went up to Jerusalem because it was the highest place in the land. And so he went up singing these songs. This is the second of the Psalms of Ascent. And being the second, it's early in the mix, as it were. And it was sung by the Hebrew pilgrim, the worshiper who was ascending the mountains of Jerusalem, looking around at these rolling hills and even rising up toward Mount Zion. Now with that in mind, think about that. You're a Hebrew pilgrim and you're singing this song and you're on your way up to Jerusalem and here are the rolling hills of Judea and you sing, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Guess what? Not the mountains. As strong as the mountains were, as great as the city was, as lovely and glorious as Jerusalem and the Temple Mountain, Mount Zion was before them, it was not the mountains or the city that was their help. No, my help comes from the Lord who makes the heavens and the earth. And Jehoshaphat knew this. Jehoshaphat learned what many kings and rulers across the ages never learned. And that is that greatness is not measured by where you lead a people. Greatness is not measured by how you lead a people. Or in some cases by how you force feed a people. True greatness is measured to whom you lead a person or a people. By whom you lead or to whom you lead. True greatness is measured if you lead a people to the Lord. That's where greatness is found. And this is what Jehoshaphat is doing. And, and ladies and gentlemen, together, whether it's in the home or in the workplace or in a church fellowship or in government, whatever your role is, leadership is measured not by where you lead or how you lead but by to whom you lead. And as fathers, as you lead your children to the Lord, you're a great leader. Mothers, as you lead children to the Lord, you're a great leader. Husbands, as you lead your wives to the Lord. Wives, yes, even as you lead your husbands to the Lord, that is great leadership. And it's difficult, because this kind of leadership runs absolutely counter to human pride. Now I'm going to speak about myself. As pastor of the Bridge Christian Fellowship, it serves my pride a lot better to act like I know where we're going and what we're doing. What are we going to do next year? Well, we're building. We're moving forward. We have our plans laid out. You can see the plans over here. I drew them myself. And I have a very definite idea. The Lord's been speaking to me. I know exactly what we're doing and where we're going. That's not greatness. More often than not, I hope that you've heard me say, I don't have a clue where we're going. In fact... That's exactly what Jehoshaphat said. Look down at verse twelve. Oh God, will you not judge them? We are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do. He admits this in front of all the people. This is the great king Jehoshaphat. He said, "I don't know what to do." Then I'm weak. The two things he says: I'm powerless and I'm clueless. And when you're powerless and you're clueless before the Lord, it is the best place to be because then you're seeking the help of the Lord. And we think the opposite. As a husband and father, I don't like to be powerless and clueless in front of my family, but that's often where I need to be if I'm going to seek the help of the Lord. If I'm truly pursuing Jesus and asking Him to be the leader in my household, <laughs> They're not easy things to admit. They require a humble spirit, but they make for great discernment. I'm powerless and I'm clueless. Understand discernment as a spiritual gift, and we talked about it quite a bit last week. Discernment is one of the gifts, and I believe it's actually about all the spiritual gifts, but it's one specifically that requires you to go to the Lord. It is not a gift unto itself. In fact, none of the gifts are gifts unto themselves. They're gifts, which means they're not acquired. They're not developed, they're given by the Spirit of the Lord requiring then an association between you and the Spirit of God for the gift to function correctly. And discernment is one of these. You have to seek the Lord if you're truly going to be a discerning people. You don't just suddenly have the answers. I'm powerless and I'm clueless. Well, we're going to come back to this great story on Sunday. That's why I skipped ahead. Skip on down to verse 31. We'll come back, spend some time with Yehoshaphat and think this through. Specifically, talking about powerlessness and cluelessness. So it should be fun on Sunday morning. Down in verse 31. Down in verse 31, we find the kind of postscript to Jehoshaphat's life. Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned in, Yer- in Jerusalem 25 years. And his mother's name was Azubah. <laughs> it's a great name, Azubah, and uh, she was the daughter of Shilhai. Now he walked in the way of his father Asa and did not depart from it, doing right in the sight of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed. The people had not yet directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. Now the rest of the Acts of Jehoshaphat, first to last, behold, they are written in the annals of Yehu, the son of Hanani, which is recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. Yehoshaphat was overall one of the good guys, one of the good kings, and again, I love to watch him in process because it reminds me we're all in process. Like Jehoshaphat, we're all growing and learning, and we're going to have great moments of seeking the Lord and trusting Him and, and glorious times where we feel really good about our walk with Jesus, and we're going to have other times where we are on our faces realizing how weak and powerless and clueless we really are, just like Jehoshaphat. And yet the Lord is gracious and walks with us and takes us through these things. You may notice Jehoshaphat is not sure-footed, but he's whole-hearted. And that's what we're called to be. You're not to be sure-footed. You're not going to be sure-footed. But if you're whole-hearted before the Lord, and this is what Les was praying about. This is one of the things that really resonated with me as he was praying. wholeheartedness in these last days. A whole, are we a whole-hearted body before the Lord? Are we going to be wholehearted for Him as He comes? Is there some aspect, some measure of my life that's, am I half-hearted in my approach to Jesus Christ? Or am I wholehearted? Is He going to find me faithful when He comes, saying, well done, good and faithful servant? That's the kind of man Jehoshaphat was. Now you might notice the high places were not removed during His reign, and that's unfortunate. In fact, there's only one king who effectively removes all of the high places, and that's Josiah. Until Josiah comes, there are great revivals in Israel, there are kings who stand up and do great things, but they never quite remove all the high places. And we have a reason here why. Verse 33 gives us one big clue. It says the people had not yet directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. You see, Jehoshaphat was wholehearted, but the people were not. And because they were not wholehearted, whatever high places Jehoshaphat took down, another two would pop up. Every time he could destroy one, the people would keep going out. They would keep returning to these high places and restoring them like a bad case of acne. As soon as you take care of one zit, another one pops up. Now, many of you don't have to deal with that so much anymore, and that's a good thing for us. You teenagers, I'm sorry, it's just the way it is, but we all dealt with it. The moment one goes away, another one pops up, and it's actually a really good picture. You might say it's kind of gross, Pastor Rick. Well, so were the high places. They were disgusting. They were abominations. They were abhorrent before the Lord. They were blemishes on the land of Israel, truly. Zips in high places. What a picture of the insidious nature of sin. That's how sin works. Just as soon as we feel like we can, you know, stamp it down over here, boom, it pops up over there, and now I'm dealing with that. And that's why works will never save you, because no matter how many of the sin in your sins in your life you can get a handle on more are going to spring up we got to have Jesus man we need the Lord so Ephesians 5.25 Paul writes Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no splot, spot splot <laughs> okay that'll work having no spot or blemish or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless. And please don't miss this especially as we consider and pray about His coming and we live in these last days. The washing is by Christ, not the church. He will present us as spotless because of His work and His blood not because of our work or even our blood. Because our blood is tainted blood. Only his is perfect. I' read something today that's tragic. I, I'm reading a book right now that um, I'll tell you more about it later, but it, it was quoting a young woman who had become who was born and raised Christian and uh, converted to Islam. And she said, because I, I just never could understand why God would have to send someone to do his work for him and why Christ would have to die for me anyway. And I went and talked to a pastor. And I'm quoting loosely from the book. She went and talked to a pastor and the pastor didn't satisfy the answer. Let me tell you why Christ had to die for you. Because you can't save yourself. Because I can't save myself. Because our blood is tainted and His blood alone is perfect. And there has to be, there has to be perfection in the presence of God. And so Jesus went first and said, I will take the rap and I will pour out my precious, spotless, sinless blood so that you can now approach the Lord because I took your place and took your punishment that you deserved. It is a subtle point here, Gink, but it is absolutely critical in that it keeps our faith and our focus on Him rather than on ourselves and not on our efforts and our accomplishments. He does the work. And we praise Him for that. Philippians 1.6, Paul said, I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And the whole picture there is an ongoing cleansing and perfection that the Lord is doing in us. Even at times we're not aware of it. He is perfecting. So hang in there. Be faithful. Because the Lord is being faithful to you. So we give Him our whole heart. He removes the high places of sin, arrogance, and pride. But again, unless our hearts are directed toward the Lord our God and ready for change, the high places will keep popping up. Like they did in Israel. Verse 35. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel. This is Ahab's son. And he acted wickedly in so doing. So he allied himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. And they made the ships in Etzion-Geber. And then Eleazar, the son of Dodabahu of merishah prophesied against Yehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. So the ships were broken and could not go to Tarshish Remember the poor alliances of Jehoshaphat. I mean, with this king, it's up and down. We just see how he walked in the ways of the of his father Asa, and he was wholehearted before the Lord. But he allies himself now toward the end of his life with Ahab's son, Jehoshaphat. once again, I just got to say it: jumping Jehoshaphat. What are you thinking? I won't say that anymore. It's just kind of fun to say. Actually, it should be jumping Jehoshaphat if we're saying it in Hebrew. But he made these alliances that we talked about last week. He made that military alliance with Ahab against Syria and he was almost killed. And then he makes this marketable alliance that we're looking at right here with Ahab's son. And this is at the end of his life after learning to discern Yehoshaphat after teaching judgment to his people is a poor judge of character once again. What is he thinking? Why does he keep going back? We do the same thing when we as Christians and wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ we think what's the big deal I'm not giving up my faith I'm just doing this little thing over here on the side it's just a little shady business deal it's not that big a deal (laughs) just making a few extra bucks what's the harm in that I know it's probably not legal but that's all right. you know I know I'm kind of skirting the issue on my taxes but you know it's income and I tithe off it you know I know I shouldn't be in this relationship, or I shouldn't be involved in that thing. I shouldn't be, you know, stacking up these movies in my collection. Whatever it is for you, when we kind of do that little winking at sin and do our little ventures on the side, and we say to ourselves, "Hey, it's not one of the seven deadly sins, right? <laughs> All sin's deadly." But let me tell you something about this, and maybe you don't see it here in these few verses. But I see God's grace here. In that, the Lord doesn't destroy Jehoshaphat and Judah. He just destroys the ships. He destroys the sin. He stops Jehoshaphat from going forward. What would have happened? I don't know. I mean, we can only guess. What if the ships had gotten there and come back and maybe more money came into the coffers and maybe Jehoshaphat's alliance would have taken Judah down an even worse road. I don't know, but God stopped it. Praise God when He sinks any of your ventures that are not of Him. And we need to think along those lines. There are times we get involved in things and they don't work out and we get frustrated. Lord, I could have made a bundle. And He's going, didn't want you to. I see what you don't see down the line. He's often protecting us against more sin popping up later. But Jehoshaphat continues to align himself, to ally himself with the wicked house of Ahab. Why is that? Well, the third reason, because there's a marital alliance. They're family now. They're family. His son Yehoram and Ataliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, who we're going to see in just a moment, is absolutely wicked through and through. In fact, as we go into chapter 21 now, we enter a couple of chapters of Hebrew history where sin rips the revival right out of Judah. Verse 1 of chapter 21. Then Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Jehoram his son became king in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariahu, Michael, and Shephatiah. These were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. And their father gave them many gifts of silver, gold, and precious things with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Well, this is what you do. Verse 4, Now when Jehoram had taken over the kingdom of his father and made himself secure, he killed all his brothers with the sword and some of the rulers of Israel also. Why did he do that? Well, it was customary in the day. (laughs) That's what the nations did. Someone would rise to power. You kill everybody who is a threat to the throne. And that's exactly what, what Jehoram does now kills all of his brothers. Verse 5, Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned 8 years in Jerusalem. Not a long time, and there's a reason for that. Verse 6, He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, not Judah, Israel, just as the house of Ahab did, for Ahab's daughter was his wife. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet, The Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which He had made with David, and since He had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. the house of Ahab in Israel has now infiltrated the house of Judah, has now made its way in. Ahab had a house of sin, and now the house of sin has itself firmly planted in Jerusalem. Of course, if not for Jesus, we'd be a house of sin here tonight. <laughs> you know, We'd gather together and that would be the sum total of, of our works. Because we all have the same sin nature that Ahab did. Ahab was as wicked as they came, and I could be just as wicked as Ahab. I have that potential and so do you. We all could follow that same way. We were born with the same sin nature. That Ahab was born with. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about the doctrine of, or so called doctrine of original sin. I don't buy it. I don't believe that I am stained by the sin of Adam and by his failures and his sins. But I am stained by my own sin, and I do have a nature that, if given the choice, runs the direction of sin. Not you, Pastor. Yeah, me too. (laughs) We all do. The Lord says in Ezekiel eighteen four, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine, the soul who sins will die. Let me tell you something, though, that is truly evil and truly demonic in our world today. It's telling people that man is inherently good. And I'm very serious it is demonic. Back in the early eighties, Robert Shuler published a book called Self Esteem The New Reformation. In which he wrote, quote, The most destructive thing that has ever been foisted or promulgated on the mind of man is to tell him that he is a sinner. Really? Well, Bob,
1: (laughs) if man is,
0: is not a sinner, then why do we need a Savior? For what purpose did Jesus waste his time coming down to this earth if we're inherently good people Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture I'm not sure it can be any clearer but let me give you a couple more 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you are healed this is what we're talking about here Revelation one five. He loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. Now I'll tell you, it is not destructive to tell a man or a woman he or she is a sinner. It's exactly the opposite. To tell you that you're not sinners leaves you as as vulnerable and as lost as Ahab. For me to say to you, you don't need it. Just be a good person. I am uh, paving the way to hell for you. And so I have to tell you the truth tonight. A truth that I know about myself very well. We are sinners, and we need Jesus Christ. Part of this history, if you want to look at it this way, of going through the Old Testament Scriptures, part of the history of Israel in the Bible is to remind us again and again and again that sin is a terrible tyrant and a miserable master. But the greater part of this Hebrew history in Scripture is the telling of the story of grace. That, as bad as we may be as sinners, so great is the grace of Jesus Christ in saving us. Now, right here, God has every right to destroy both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Right here, He should do it. I mean, the house of Ahab is everywhere, and everybody should just be wiped out. But He doesn't because He made a promise. He promised David to give him a lamp. To him and his sons forever, verse 7 tells us. A lamp there in Jerusalem. A light that would not go out. Second Samuel 7.16 The Lord said to David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So even as wicked as Jehoram is, murderous, killing all of his brothers, and following the house of Ahab, and listening to his wife, Athaliah, As bad as he is, God doesn't destroy Judah, though Judah deserves it because he made a promise. Psalm 132.13 says, The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation. And her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. And you know what the word anointed is. It's Mashiach for my Messiah. The lamp of David would not go out until Messiah comes. The true lamp of God there in Israel. And so sinful man is the canvas on which the Lord chose to paint His grace in the story of Jesus Messiah. Romans 5 verse 20 tells us where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And God is faithful. And that's why He's not destroying, not just yet. Verse 8, in His days, that is the days of Yehoram, Edom revolted against the rule of Judah and set up a king over themselves. You see, before, Judah had control of the Edomites, not now. And then Yehoram crossed over with his commanders and all his chariots with him. And he arose by night and struck down the Edomites who were surrounding him and the commanders of the chariots. So Edom revolted against Judah to this day, that is to the day of the writing of the Chronicles. This battle would rage back and forth between Judah and the Edomites constantly And it tells us then Libna revolted at the same time against his rule because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. Note that Libna was not a God-fearing nation, but they revolted because Judah was no longer functioning as a God-fearing nation and the protection of the Lord is now removed. Judah's on their own. Because they had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. Verse 11. Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah. Not only did he not tear them down, he built more. And caused the inhabitants, the Hebrew there is literally he compelled the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot and led Judah astray. I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he wrote new laws saying he had to go up to the high places, but he did something to compel the people to idolatry. Jehoram is not a good guy. Verse twelve is interesting. Then a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet. Remember Elijah the Tishbite, great Elijah called down fire from heaven and caused the sky not to rain. You remember him. The letter came saying, Thus says the Lord God of your father David, Because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father and the ways of Asa king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot, as the house of Ahab played the harlot, and you have also killed your brothers, your own family, Who were better than you. I love that little jab. Behold, the Lord is going to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and all your possessions with a great calamity, and you, Yehoram, will suffer severe sickness, a disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the sickness day by day. I just love Elijah. What a great prophet. Well, something's interesting here. He receives the only known written prophecy of Elijah. It's right here in Second Chronicles. There's no other written prophecy that he gave. And we have it right here, this one. But it's a posthumous prophecy. What do you mean by that? Elijah was raptured up to heaven before Jehoram came to rule. Elijah was not on the scene. Some commentators think, oh, well, it must be a scribal error. It must have been Elisha. I don't think so. You see, I think Elijah sat down and wrote this letter to be sent to Yehoram when Yehoram came into the rule, after Jehoram would then murder his brothers, his family, and cause Israel to sin or Judah to sin. So the letter was written by Elijah, rolled up the scroll, handed to a messenger, and said, hang on, give this to you. know." You, you've seen Back to the Future, right? Remember the scene in Back to the Future where Marty's standing in the middle of the road and, and a, uh, a male... What, a, a postal service worker comes driving up and hands him a letter that was from like 1855. <laughs> That's what we're talking about here. messenger comes up and says, Hey, I, I got a letter to you from Elijah. Elijah? He hasn't been around for years. What's this saying? He opens it up and reads this thing. And you might say, Well, <laughs> for Elijah to do that, he'd have to be some kind of prophet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is not problematic for the Lord, gang. Isaiah 46, verse 9, he says, I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established. So Elijah writes this letter. It ends up in the hands of Jehoram. Watch what happens. Verse 16, Then the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabs who bordered the Ethiopians. Remember, just a generation or so before, under King Esau, the Philistines were bring, bringing tribute during the revival of Judah. And now the Philistines are attacking because things have gotten so bad. And the Arabs who bordered the Ethiopians, verse 16, verse 17, they came against Judah and invaded it, and carried away all the possessions found in the king's house, together with his sons and his wives, and that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his son. unfortunately um, the daughter of Jezebel, Athaliah, she's still in the picture. Kind of wish she had been taken away. You'll see why in a moment. But it says in verse 18, So after all this, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable sickness. Now it came in the course of time at the end of two years that his bowels came out because of his sickness. And he died in great pain. And his people made no fire for him like the fire for his father's He was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years and he departed with no one's regret. How'd you like that on your tombstone? No one misses him. Too bad he's gone. And they buried him in the city of David but not in the tombs of the kings. Gang, the people burned no fire for him because he had burned them. What does it mean burn the fire? It was an offering of incense that was often done at the funerals of the kings but they didn't do it for this king he was a wicked mess no one had any regret at his passing no one mourned him like sin itself this king was a terrible tyrant and so the people were glad to be rid of him now I'll just point this out because I can't help it we can't be exactly sure about the kind of disease that caused this result but one commentator did write the following this disease was a violent dysentery being an inflammation of the nervous tissue of the whole great intestine, which causes the overlying mucous membrane to decay and peel off, which then falls out often in tube shape, so that the intestines appear to fall from the body. Just want you to get a clear picture of what we're talking about. Trying to keep it scholarly and biblical. Here's the point, gang. Yes? Yeah. Would you like me to read it again? Just to be more of the tube shape that it does. I'll put it this way this is the outflow of Jehoram's sin. I know, I know, it's disgusting. But sin always is, it's always disgusting. And the devil would paint a different picture on it. It's fun, it's cool, it's not a big deal. No. It is as gross as it gets. It is as horrifying as it gets. And I've told you before, it's Jesus on the cross. That's the end result of the sin. Brutalized and unrecognizable and bleeding from all places in His body. And broken and torn. That's what sin does. And the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is always death. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the band of men who came with the Arabs to the camp had slain all the older sons. And so Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Verse 2. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. Guess what? No better than his dad. And his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, again the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Verse 3, He also, this Ahaziah, also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. He also walked according to their counsel and went with Jehoram the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to with is a different Jehoram now, this is the king in Israel, went with him to wage war against Hatsiel, the king of Aram, at ramoth Gilead, but the Aramaeans wounded Joram, or Jehoram, of Israel. Verse 6, So he returned to be healed in, in Jezreel with, of the wounds which they had inflicted on him at Ramah, when he had fought against Hatsiel, the king of Aram. Now Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Jehoram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. Now are you tracking this okay It's a couple of Jehoram, so it's hard to follow. Jehoram, king in Israel, is wounded in battle, and so Ahaziah of Judah goes for a visit there in the Jezreel Valley. Okay, And it says then in verse 7 the destruction of Ahaziah was from God in that he went to Joram or Jehoram. What do you mean? When he came, he went out with Jehoram against Jehu the son of Nimshi whom the Lord had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. And you may remember Yehu. Yehu was a king in Israel who had one, well, I guess he had two purposes. He was God's judgment against the house of Ahab and against the house of the Baals. His whole rule was a slaughterhouse. If you were of the house of Ahab, just as God had pronounced through the prophets, if you were of the house of Ahab and Yehu had you in his sights, you were dead meat. And he went after and, and destroyed the house of Ahab. And he went after the Baals and destroyed the Baals. And he functioned as a, as a, a hand of wrath, a hammer for, for the Lord God. But this Yehu, boy, talk about a bloody guy. He would be at least a rated R movie if we, if we had his life put up on the big screen. This was a bad dude. And the problem is Ahaziah comes along visiting Yehoram of Israel and is there for a visit and down comes Yehu. And Yehu comes down to kill this Yehoram because he's of the house of Ahab. And they look, and here's Ahaziah. Well, he's of the house of Ahab too, isn't he? Because his mom is Ahab's daughter. And so they kill him as well after one year of rule there in Israel. Do you see how far reaching an unequal yoking can actually be? This this son now is dead. The house of Ahab is so infiltrated, the house of Judah, that now there's murder taking place here. And Jehoshaphat, the good king, when he marries his son into the house of Ahab, could not possibly have seen this far ahead. He couldn't possibly have known what he was really doing. Young people, again, I tell you, look down the road before you marry look down the road the decision you make on that day cannot be a decision of passion it must be a decision of your life because that decision is going to affect your entire life it has mine in a really good way lord think these things through verse 8 verse 8 now in chapter 22 that's where we're at right yeah it came about when Yehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab. He found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers ministering to Ahaziah and slew them. And he sought Ahaziah, Ahaziah the king for one year in Judah. He sought him and they caught him while he was hiding in Samaria. They brought him to Yehu and they put him to death and they buried him which was you know a complimentary thing that they did for him for they said he's the son of Jehoshaphat who sought the Lord with all his heart. So at least they buried him. They didn't just toss his body on the side of the road. And so there was no one of the house of Ahaziah to retain the power of the kingdom, and we're talking about the kingdom of Judah. Now watch this gang. Athaliah is left. Athaliah, the daughter of Jezebel and Ahab, who married into Judah. She's in Jerusalem. Her son is dead. The, the brothers not doing well and so Atalia the daughter of Ahab lost her husband Jehoram to that dread disease of his bowels coming out just in case you forgot and her youngest son Ahaziah is now dead by the sword so what does Atalia do this woman of the house of Ahab she usurps the throne she grabs hold of it for herself and she's not even an heir in the line of Judah. She's a false ruler now, a false king. She grabs hold of the throne. Now watch this, the plot thickens. Watch how this sin-sick daughter of Jezebel works. Verse 10. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Anaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring of the house of Judah. Gang, this power-hungry, wicked witch of a woman now has the blood on her hands of her own grandchildren and nephews and nieces. She kills all of them. And they would be children at the time. Toddlers. She had them wiped out so that she now could assume the throne over the kingdom of Judah. This woman killing toddlers and and little children, gang, this is a satanically driven move to stop the line of Judah right here. But along comes Aunt Jehoshaphat and Uncle Jehoiada. Verse 11. Jehoshaphat, or Jehoshaphat, which is how it's written here, but it's Jehoshaphat and and King, same woman. The king's daughter took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada, the priest, for she was sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she would not put him to death. And he was hidden with them in the house of God, that is in the temple, six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. We came right here within one infant's life of losing our salvation in Jesus Christ. you see how close this gets? So persistent is Satan. He is looking for every opportunity to stop salvation. And had Yoash been killed, had all the children in the line of David and Judah been killed, the prophecy of God would have unraveled and we would be without salvation today. Because Jesus could not have come into the world. Not the way God said, promised, He would come. Amazing. They hid little Yoash in the temple right under her nose. This cracks me up. In Jerusalem! They don't take him outside of the city, rush him to the country, into a little rural farmhouse somewhere and keep him in the barn. They put him in the temple. Why? Because she never went there. The one place in Jerusalem he was absolutely safe was the temple of the Lord. And they hid him there for six years. What a great place to grow up for a little kid. To have some things instilled in him. And you'll see these in a later study about how this comes out in the rule. Of little Yoash and and what's important to him. The temple is of great importance to him. Well, for six years now in Judah things look bleak. Who could have known that Judah was on the brink, not of destruction, but on the brink of the third great revival in all the land. This time not led by a king, but led by a priest in the form of a holy conspiracy. It's a great story. Watch this. Chapter 23. Now in the seventh year, Jehoiada strengthened himself. This is Jehoiada the high priest. So he's not a king, he's a priest. And revival comes through the priest. He strengthened himself and took captains of hundreds. Azariah, the son of Jehoram, Ishmael, the son of Johanan, Azariah, the son of Obed. Maasaiah, the son of Adaiah. And Elishaphat, the son of Zikri. And they entered into a covenant with him, that is with this high priest, Jehoiada. I know I'm throwing a lot of names at you, just underline them and keep moving forward. Verse 2, they went throughout Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah, and the heads of the fathers' households of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. And then all the assembly made a covenant with the king, that is with Joash, who at this point is seven years old. He's still just a boy. They made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And Jehoiada said to them, Behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord has spoken concerning the sons of David. We have to have a son of David on the throne. This Italia doesn't have a right. Verse 4, This is the thing which you shall do. One third of you of the priests and Levites who come in on the Sabbath shall be gatekeepers. So you guys keep an eye on the gate. And one third shall be at the king's house. Keep an eye out there. And a third at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. But let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priests and the ministering Levites. They may enter because they're holy. And he says, And let all the people keep the charge of the Lord. The Levites will surround the king, each man with his weapons in his hand, and whoever enters the house, let him be killed. Now he's just setting up the holy ordinance. You don't go into the house of the Lord. You don't enter the temple if you're not a priest. And thus, be with the king when he comes in. And when he goes out, we want protection, secret service agents all around little Yoash here. Verse 8. So the Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And each one of them took his men who were, who were, come, who were to come in on the Sabbath. And those who were to go out on the Sabbath, for Jehoiada the priest did not dismiss any of them. So they're all staying together here. And Jehoiada verse 9 The priest gave to the captains of hundreds The spears and the large and small shields Which had been King David's Which were in the house of God He stationed all the people Each man with a weapon in his hand On the right side of the house And to the left side of the house And by the altar and by the house And around the king So he's got full protection And they brought out the king's son And they put the crown on him and they gave him the testimony and made him king and Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and said long live the king quickly just know what they did to make him king three things there in verse 11 they put the crown on his head so they acknowledge his rule and his right to rule on the throne because God said it must be a son of David they put the crown on his head secondly I love this they hand him the testimony what's that? it's the law they gave him the scroll of the law Because that was primary for a king. Remember, Deuteronomy 17 said the king should sit down with the law and open up a fresh scroll and write out his own copy, word for word, and then study it all the days of his life. So they hand Yoash now the scroll of the law, the testimony. And they made him king, and Jehoiada and his sons now they anointed him. That same word for Messiah. So it's the mark. Anointing, that's what it is, really. It's the mark of Messiah on you you realize that? If you're anointed by the Holy Spirit, you come to faith in Jesus and you receive the anointing of His Holy Spirit, you are receiving the mark of Messiah. That's cool. I just thought of that. And Jehoiada and his sons, they anointed Him and they said, Long live the King! Now watch this. When Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the King, she came into the house of the Lord. First time in six years. And she came to the people and she looked, and behold, the king was standing by his pillar at the entrance, and the captains and the trumpeters were beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoiced and blew trumpets, and the singers with their musical instruments leading the praise. And Natalia tore her clothes and said, "Treason! Treason!" <laughs> <laughs> and Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains of the hundreds who were appointed over the army, and they said to her, "They said to them, Bring her out between the ranks. Whoever follows her, put to death with the sword.' For the priest said, Let her not be to death in the house of the Lord. So apparently she takes off running. Queen! She's shouting. She heads out of the out of the gate there, and they seized her. Verse fifteen. And when she arrived at the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house, they put her to death there. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they would be the Lord's people. I love this Jehoiada. This is not a name you hear a lot, but you should. Yehoiada, like some of the greatest of the kings of Judah, now priest of Judah, does some wonderful things. And all the people, verse 17, went down to the house of Baal and tore it down. And they broke in pieces his altars and his images and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Moreover, Jehoidah placed the officers of the house of the Lord under the authority of the Levitical priests whom David had assigned over the house of the Lord to offer burnt offerings of the Lord. As it is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing and singing according to the order of David, he stationed the gatekeepers of the house of the Lord so that no one would enter who was in any way unclean. See what he's doing? He's getting everything back in order. He's cleaning house. He's straightening up. He's preparing gang. He's bringing about revival. Once again in Judah. Verse 20, he took the captains of hundreds, the nobles, the rulers of the people and all the people of the land and brought the king down from the house of the Lord and came through the upper gate to the king's house and they placed the king upon the royal throne. And I just want to point something out to you. This Jehoiada was such a well-loved man, such a popular man, to be able to pull all this off in Judah, he could have taken the throne himself if the power had gone to his head, but it didn't. Because this priest, this man of faith, knew that a son of Judah had to sit on that throne and he was committed to the Lord to see Yoash, the last surviving son of Judah, on the throne. All the people of the land, verse 21, rejoiced. And the city was shakat. Quiet. Oh, that that word shakat, there it is again. It is a synonym for revival game for they had put Athaliah to death with the sword. This Yehoiada, he regathered the people and he removed the idols and he restored the offerings and he returned to the covenant, the Davidic covenant of the Lord and we have now revival. Isn't that great? What a great story. What a great history. I want to ask you all a question this evening, not to answer aloud, but just to consider in your hearts as we finish up. Does the Old Testament and our studies through it, does it seem a bit like a boring history lesson sometimes? I mean, some would adamantly say no. And yet you would be surprised. From time to time, I actually hear this. What are we going to get somewhere else? What are we going to get out of this history lesson? A friend recently said this to me, and it really stuck in my crawford. (laughs) I mean, if that's the case, if if, if what we just did tonight in, in our study of the Word... And if what we do week in and week out, and if what we do on Sunday morning gang, if it is nothing more than a history lesson, either I'm not doing my job as a teaching pastor, or some are just missing the direct effect of these passages on them personally. This is not history. This is personal. This is absolutely personal. I mean, the Lord has shown me this. It's taken six years of study to start to realize this is personal. If not for the Lord placing people like Jehoiada... And Yehoshabba, in the right place, at the right time, you would not be saved. I would not have salvation. The significance of what we read and study and meditate on here in the Word, it's incredible. If not for what we have seen here and come to understand, there's no hope of salvation. If Yoash had been killed, the line of David, as I said, would be extinguished and the lamp of Israel put out. And people like Yehoshaphat and Jehoiada may sound like dusty old names from history. But, King, they matter to your faith. And they matter to mine. By the way, Yehoshaphat's name means Yahweh has sworn. Yahweh has sworn. You see, when Yahweh swears... He makes an unbreakable promise, the Hebrew writer says, on two things which are unbreakable. His character and His name. Yahweh has sworn. It's the perfect name for this Yehoshua because that's exactly what the Lord had done. He has sworn to keep a lamp burning in Israel. And so Yehoshua, whose name means Yahweh has sworn, took hold of, of Yoash and hides him because the Lord had sworn. And so she's acting faithfully in the Lord. Her husband, Yehoiada, The priest, his name means Jehovah knows. Yahweh knows. Again, a reminder that God knows what to do, even in the worst of circumstances. Man, we we approach chapter 23, and I was thinking, reading through I'm thinking, oh boy, it's going to get going from bad to worse. you, she's just going to mess it all up. And right on the edge of that, right in the moment, when it seems like all hope is lost, Jehovah knows. Yahweh knows. Do you realize that when you are on the brink of disaster when you feel like this is it, we cannot get to the next day, that may very well be the moment that God is planning the wonderful, glorious surprise of His intervention. He is just about to move. He's just about to put His hand in. He's about to do something great in your life. Right when we think there's no hope, God's lamp is still burning. Now think back to what I said at the outset tonight. God, He staked His entire plan of salvation on a single nation and on the continuance of that nation. On Israel. Jesus said in John 4.22, Salvation is from the Jews. That's where it comes from. They came through the Jewish people because God chose them as the nation to be the people through whom Jesus would come. Romans 9.5 refers to Israel from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God, blessed forever. Amen. Israel then is God's chosen conduit for God's holy seed to come into the world. We know this, Rick. You're repeating yourself. I just want you to get it. And understanding that, it should not surprise us that Satan has tried time and time again to stamp out this seed. What some might say, a boring history lesson, I say, no. You're you're watching a drama unfold. The greatest drama of history. And what's happening is from the very beginning of Genesis to the very end of Revelation, Satan is trying to stamp out the seed. He's doing everything he can to do it. Satan begins this attempt of homicide against the seed of God in the very beginning. Genesis 3.15 The Lord said to the serpent, "...I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, Satan, and you shall bruise him on the heel." Well, Satan didn't want to be bruised on the head. So what does he do? With the first two boys born, he he causes murder to happen. He goes after Abel. Abel is born. Kill the seed! And Abel is dead. And Cain is a murderer. And so the seed cannot continue. But God preserves the line through the third son, Seth. Seth is a godly line. It's when people first start calling on the name of the Lord. Genesis chapter 6, then we see the same thing. The Nephilim come along. You remember the Nephilim? There those giants in the land when the sons of God, Genesis 6 tell us, come together with the daughters of man in, in an unholy union. Satan attempts to corrupt the very bloodline of man. And at that point, we get down to eight people or all salvation is lost. One of them named Noah. And God destroys the world, but it is an act of grace because through those eight people, He is able to save all those who had lived and died before. The generation of the flood. All those of the line of Seth who were godly people who died just hoping that salvation someday could come that they might be saved because of their faith. Exodus chapter 3 Pharaoh determines to destroy all the male Hebrew children. Again, Satan is going to stamp the line out, destroy the seed, kill it. God protects Israel, sending Moses as the deliverer, another little boy saved at a time when all salvation seemed to be lost 1 Samuel 16 the Lord announces and Satan's listening don't think Satan doesn't have his minions everywhere listening for the next clue or bit of information or revelation as to where Messiah is going to come from 1 Samuel 16 the Lord announces that David is his choice and as soon as this is known an evil spirit begins to torment Saul and what does Saul do? he tries to kill David because the lord says i'm going to use the line of david now oh good kill the line of david kill the seed kill the seed second samuel chapter 7 god now covenants with david and says it's going to be one of yours it's going to be in your line and it's not long before atalia tries to kill off the only children left of that line and again we get down to just one do you realize how many times one child lived Seth, Noah, Moses, David, Joash, and ultimately Jesus, when Herod tries to wipe out all of the male children under the age of two, and we get down to Jesus. then Jesus grows up. And He preaches, and He saves, and He heals, and He does great things, and He is crucified on the cross. And for three days, for three days, Satan thinks, I did it. I killed the seed. But that lovely Sunday morning broke and the tomb was empty. And so I ask you tonight, are we talking about a boring history or are we talking about the blessed hope? This is why we're in the Word. This is why we take the time to be here. Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Isaiah 9, seven. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And there is nothing foreign about that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Father, forgive me if my teaching or my preaching is ever a boring history lesson. Forgive me, Father, if I ever mishandle Your words such that it does not come across with all the power and glory and wonder that You intended. For, Lord, I recognize every sentence, every word You ordained to be in this glorious book. If I mess that up, Father, Lord, Holy Spirit, this is why I pray You do the teaching. And you get out ahead of me and don't let me mess it up. And likewise, Father, I pray for the softening of the whole heart of this fellowship that the receiving of the Word of God would not fall on either deaf ears or studious ears, would not be received as just another story from the dusty pages of time. But Father, we would recognize Your hand on this book. And we would hear Your Spirit in our hearts. Bring us to a place of wholeheartedness as we await Your coming, Lord Jesus. And it's in Your name we pray tonight. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you all.